We're in Ephesians chapter 1. If you would turn there. Ephesians chapter 1, continuing our series Letters from Prison, which we just started last Sunday. And we got all the way down to verse 2. And uh, so we're looking forward to getting into a few more verses here today and uncovering a lot more exciting things for us here this morning. Now, again, I want you to keep in mind, if you weren't here with us last week, um, just to give you a bit of context now, again, Paul the Apostle is writing this letter as he's writing both Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, as he's writing these letters from, anybody want to take a guess at it? From prison. I mean, it's so obvious. It's letters from prison. I threw out an easy question for you. And so the reality is, and this boggles my mind, is that here's Paul in prison. Not just, not just once, this is his second imprisonment. It's possible he had a third imprisonment too. We know he was, he was thrown also into prison for a night in, in, Philipp, in Philippi. And so we see that Paul is no stranger to prison. I, I pray that we don't say that about any of us here, but in the days that we live in, just for being a Christian, that might be a familiar statement to start making for people. But Paul has been no no, um, hasn't been unfamiliar with prison. And yet the remarkable thing that just blows my mind away is that here's Paul choosing now to take time to write as he's led of the Lord and not just to write a letter to the church, which if it were me, I'd be writing church. Can you guys get your act together and get me out of prison? Like this isn't where I wanna be. Somebody do something. Write a letter to the mayor, start rallying, do something, Right? But here's Paul writing a letter to encourage and build up fellow believers in the Lord. Now, there'd be a lot of questions saying, Paul, isn't it? if the Lord, if God is so real, why are you in prison? But for Paul, this is not an issue of, of God and his power. Or so, This is God now revealing his sovereignty in that God is gonna use Paul in a special way right from prison. I think that's the amazing thing for Paul is to recognize that his life isn't revolving around his circumstances, what he's experiencing from this life. His life is all about what he has already experienced in and through Jesus. And it's reason why he can now, with joy and excitement, write this letter to express the wonders, the beauty, the blessings of God. That's what Paul is doing. And so in this, continuing on in verse three now, chapter one in Ephesians, Paul is gonna lay out this incredible blessings that we have in not just God the Father, but also in God the Son and in God the Holy Spirit. Yeah, from verses three to 14, we see this wonderful working of the whole Trinity. A lot of people like to say, oh, the Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible. Well, not by name, Trinity. That's something we came up with, but the whole teaching and idea and, and idea the Godhead three in one, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit is mentioned all through scripture. And Paul is gonna lay that out for us here when he talks about the blessings of God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. Here's what we're gonna be looking at, verses three to 14. We're gonna see that, Blessings from God the Father is that he's chosen us, accepted us, adopted us. This is the, the past blessings of election. Then we move in verse seven, uh, verse 7 to verse 12, the blessings of God the Son, where we see that he's redeemed us, forgiven us, revealed God's will to us, made us an inheritance. That's the present blessings that we have in adoption. And then blessings from God the Holy Spirit, verses 13 to 14. We see that he sealed us 
and he is our guarantee. This is speaking of the future blessings of unification that we're God's. He's marked us. He's sealed us. It's all done through the Holy Spirit. So that's the work that we see, verses 3 to verse 14. What's amazing is that as Paul begins to write verse 3, all the way from verse 3 to 14, in the original Greek, Paul is writing this as one continuous sentence. Yeah, grammarly in school, this would not, Paul would not have been acing anything in English in grammar in school. His teachers would have been like saying, Paul, this isn't going to fly. This is one run-on sentence. You've got to put some punctuation there. But Paul's like, I am so caught up now in just looking at the blessings of God, the wonders that have been given to us, the blessings we have, that I'm not going to stop for a period or a comma. I just want to keep writing to express the glories of Jesus and of, and of God and of the Holy Spirit. This is what we see, verses 3 to verse 14, just one continuous thought flowing out from Paul. I mean, again, he might be in prison, but, but prison isn't keeping him at bay. I mean, he is just still caught up in the beauty and the glory of God, and he's wanting others to see the reality for that in their lives, regardless of their circumstances, right? So look at this with me in verse three. We read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So Paul, like I said, just, he just breaks into this great doxology here, a, a praise to God and a praise of God just for his incredible blessings that he has experienced in his life, that all believers now, and, and I want you to catch this, that all believers have experienced in and through Jesus. This is not about what's to come, this is not about one day I hope I can attain to that or, or have this joy, Paul. This is the reality for each and every one of us as believers today. Paul's gonna lay out some glorious truths for us here that we need to be appropriating to our lives to realize this is what we have in Christ for all of us here. So Paul is just responding in praise. Everything that we experience in life and go through in life, we have reason to praise because of what God has done for us. Oh, I understand you might be going through difficult days right now. You might have undergone a great trial in your life. You might be in a trial right now, but understand that doesn't limit the goodness of God in your life. This doesn't change who God is. The fact that what God has already done for you, what we have today in Christ, doesn't change regardless of the circumstances or trials you might be in today. In other words, there's constant reason for us just to be living this life like Paul, where every day we just want to get up and praise God for his, his goodness and his grace in our lives. Amen. So notice here what Paul says, blessed be the God and Father. And I like, I like that. I think, I think Paul is putting a little bit of an emphatic on the, the, saying, blessed be the God, the only God, the one true God, the only God by which we're blessed by, right? Look at what James says. Chapter one, verse 17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow turning. In other words, we understand that every good thing that happens, every blessing we experience, not because of what we've dictated or what we've kind of laid out, what plans we set forth, it's because of God. And it's because of the God, the only true God, the only God who blesses, all right? Do you recognize that? Do you see that? The only God that blesses. Every other religion, again, has a God 
that they fear and they worry and that they're looking simply to just to stay out of his bad books. But God is the only God, the one true God. He's a God that blesses. Now this word blessed is the Greek word eulogitos and it means to speak well of. It's where we get our English word eulogy where again, we like to just kind of speak well of somebody and, and oftentimes, sadly, we only speak well of them at their death. It's kind of like too late, but we eulogize somebody, right? At their, at their funeral, we want to speak well. We want to, we want to lift them up, right? And, and, and just, uh, again, remember their life. But when Paul writes that, now, so again, he's writing, blessed be the God. He's writing that. When he says that, he uses this word, again, like I said, eulogitos, it's an adjective, and it's only applied to God. But then when Paul writes that God has blessed us, he uses the Greek word eulogio, that was a verb, and it means to invoke blessing and good on a person. So in other words, Paul is, is reciting again what, what God has done for us. He's poured out blessing and good upon us. And then when Paul writes with every spiritual blessing, right? He uses the word eulogio, and this is a noun, and it's meant to describe a benefit bestowed. A benefit bestowed, all right? So this is the three words he uses, blessed. Oftentimes when we use a word, especially that word blessed, I mean, we use it, somebody sneezes, bless you, you know, have a blessed day. We use this word kind of all over the place, sometimes it loses meaning. But Paul uses it three times, and, and in three different kind of forms, adjective, noun, and, and a verb. All has kind of a bit of a different meaning here. He wants to speak well to God. He's praising God. Blessed be God. I, I lift up your name. You're worthy of it all. But then again, we see how he has blessed us. He's, he's just brought blessing. He's a blessing God. And he's blessed with every spiritual blessing. He's, he's bestowed all these great benefits and blessings in our lives. Now think about that for a second. Every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. It seems almost unbelievable, doesn't it? You, you think, how can that be? How, how can I be a recipient of every spiritual blessing? Do, I mean, do we live with that kind of understanding? Do we live with that realization today that you're wealthy beyond belief in Christ? And that's again the key here, okay? In Christ, these are spiritual blessings that are in the heavenly places. Notice that, in Christ. In other words, they're not material blessings, right? They're not earthly possessions. They're linked to Christ in the heavenlies. They, they ascend beyond this earthly plane because if we're living for benefits or blessings on this earth, we understand, first of all, they're temporary. We also understand they're never gonna satisfy. They might for a time. They might feel good for a time but they're never going to satisfy. That's the trick of the enemy. The enemy wants you to, to think these are, is what's gonna help you. The things of this world, this is what's gonna bring pleasure or joy in your life. And they might for a time, but in the end it leaves you empty because it's not what God intends for you. God wants to bless you with lasting blessing and there are blessings that are in the heavenly places in Christ. It reminds us of what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, Verse three to four, when he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. And it does not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. 
I love that. It's reserved in heaven for you. See, the more that we have a view of eternity, the more that you're gonna be filled with joy in the present. Because you recognize, man, I'm not looking for the things today to bless me, to benefit me, to bring me any kind of satisfaction or peace or joy. I know these things in this world aren't gonna, but those things are already given to me in Christ and they're in the heavenly. They're, they go beyond, they supersede the temporal and the earthly things and they're things that are lasting, they're eternal. So in other words, again, like what we said at the beginning here, regardless of what we encounter or go through in life, my joy is not resting on those things. It's resting on the promises of God that there's blessings for us in the heavenly places. But here's the great thing, is that there are things that we get to enjoy now. They're not just for a future day. It's in a future day that we will understand them more in full when we comprehend them, but they're blessings that we get to enjoy now because they're spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, right? Now that's gonna be a popular term that you're gonna see throughout the book of Ephesians. It's gonna be used 12 times, that term, in Christ. Paul wants to emphasize that in this writing here where it's all about what we have and who we are in Christ. Remember that. That's important here, okay? And that's a position for the believer today. And I say a lot to say because though they're spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, they're that that we get to enjoy and experience in part now because we're in Christ. We're in Christ. But that's the key. You got to be in Christ. You have to be in Christ. It's all about what he's done for us. We have access to these spiritual blessings and they're all linked to Jesus. In other words, they're not so much things that we have to ask for rather than they're things that we simply have to appropriate to our lives now and realize this is what I have now because I'm in Christ. We don't have to pray, Lord, could you just bless me? Jesus is in there saying, what are you talking about? I already have, man. I've died on a cross for you. I've risen again. I've given you life. I've forgiven you of your sin. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies are yours. What are you talking about? Can you bless me? I already have. And if you are in Christ and you're abiding in Christ, then you realize all the more the blessings that are yours today in the present. Do you see how that flows? Be with me so far? Tracking? Okay. Because it, it takes a sharp turn here in a second. Look at verse four. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Verse four just continues to reflect on the blessings that we have in Jesus. But verse four brings up some very difficult things as we look at that God has chosen us. He's chosen us. In him, in Christ. This brings up the topic of election. Election versus man's free will and responsibility. This is, these are subjects that get debated on a lot in church and among Christian circles. And there are those that swing to, you no, know, it's all about the election of God. There's those that swing all the way to, you no know, man has responsibility. How do we reckon these two? And these are difficult things. And what we often do when we come upon difficult passages like this is we just skip down to the next verse. So verse five, um, actually that, that gets right into it again there in verse five. So there's no getting around this here. But you see, 
what we look at is some, some struggle over these issues, right, of election and versus free will. What is it? Is it election or is it free will? And the answer is yes. Yes. Because the Bible teaches both. Okay? Can we, can, and we can, we can debate that later. Let's not do it right now. If you, have, if you have discrepancies on that and you got a difference of view, come and talk to me after. That's all good. But I believe the Bible teaches both. Now, some will say, well, if God chooses who's going to be saved, then, then why do we even need to respond? Or some will say God doesn't really choose. Rather, he just knows who's going to be saved. And so we go back and forth on this issue, and we can until you're blue in the face. The truth is the Bible teaches both sides. God is sovereign, and he does the choosing. We see it all through scripture. Now, some people will take issue with that, feeling that perhaps it's arbitrary or maybe it's conditioned upon some kind of merit because that's what we often experience today, don't we? We experience things being picked or chosen based on performance. It's like playing sports on the playground, right? And it's like, man, you don't wanna be picked last because if you're picked last, everybody knows this guy can't really play, right? Or, or you know, not being chosen in a, in a job interview for a certain position, you feel like, oh man, my, my credentials weren't good enough. They didn't like that I, maybe I wasn't able, had the ability or, or able to perform in that. And we experience this whole idea of, uh, of choosing based on performance. But let me just say, God's choosing has nothing to do with your performance. It has nothing to do with his favoritism. His choosing was solely based on his love and grace for you, pure and simple. And in fact, we see that very clearly demonstrated with the nation of Israel. Well, other times saying, well, how come the nation of Israel is so fortunate? How come they're the ones chosen by God? Let's just read what it says in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 to 8. God says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Notice this. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people for you were the least of all peoples. But the Lord chose you because the Lord loves you. That's it. Plain and simple. It goes on to say, and not it goes on to say, but another verse in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 1.9 says, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to your works but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. You see, people have felt the need to try to swing to one side or the other of this debate because they try to figure out God based on their own rationale and their thinking. Calvinists will swing to the side of it's all about election because if it's not by God's election and rather by our free will, then God's not really sovereign. And, and if, if God does it that way, then how can you really be God? But then those that are, again, Arminius now, they swing to the other side and they go, no, it's all by free will. And you need to continue to you know, work for your salvation. You can easily lose your salvation. And so your salvation is kind of really based upon your ability to, to remain in those things, right? And so you got these two extremes where you go Calvinist or you go Arminian. And the, and the the problem is, again, that people are trying to define God based on their finite thinking. Can I just say, stop doing that? Because you'll never be able to do it. 
because God is so much greater and higher than your rational thinking. He goes beyond that. He supersedes all that. So we can't bring God down to our level to try. If we can bring God down to our level, then he's not big enough for us to worship. He goes beyond that. And, and we can never do that. But what we see is that the Bible so clearly teaches both sides. I think you could say, you, can, you could call me a Calminian. I'm kind of in between. I think I got that from Tim, right? We're, we're there together, right, Tim? Okay. Calminian, where it's like the Bible teaches both sides. And again, the problem is that people try to reconcile these two terms. And these are two terms that don't need to be reconciled. I think they just run kind of parallel together. Uh, along parallel lines that are never going to cross, but we'll understand one day how they meet up. In fact, I think in John 6, verse 37, we see an example of these two things at work. Because look at what Jesus says. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, election, choosing. And the one who comes to me, free will, I'll by no means cast out. I believe that teaches both sides. All through scriptures, we see whosoever will may come. In other words, God's election Yes, he's choosing, but he's also giving man, every person, opportunity to come to him. I'm, I'm going to get into some more of this here in the, in the next verse, but someone expressed it this way, and I like it. They said, there's a great arch that everyone um, is going to pass through when they go into eternity as, as believers. And above that arch, it'll say, whosoever will may come. And when they pass through that arch, on the other side, it's gonna say chosen from the foundation of the world. See, I think there's the two parts at play here that we don't fully understand, nor can we, I think, adequately reconcile those two things together. But that's the beauty of God. God is so much greater that he can be sovereign and choose even in the midst of man having free will. God is so good so wonderful that he can do that. That goes beyond our thinking. But praise the Lord. God's able. Amen. And he does the work. Amen. The fact that God chose us before the foundation of the world shows that his choosing was not about us, but all about his grace. And an opportunity for him just to show and reveal his love. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says that God chose me before I came into the world because if he had waited after I got here, then he never would have chosen me. And that's, I think, true for all of us to say that. And, and here's why. Election is with a purpose, my friends, okay? Here's why he chose us. He chose us, it says in verse four, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And again, that word holy always has with it that idea of separation, living different. That's that term holy. That's the same word, hagios, that he uses in verse one for the saints, when he dresses the saints. He says, to the saints, the hagios, and now he says that we're chosen to be holy, hagios. We're chosen to be set apart, just as saints are, simply those that are set apart for the Lord, and set apart with purpose. That's the word holy. Now, when God, remember in Deuteronomy 7, when God says, I chose you, Israel, right? A, a holy people to the Lord. He didn't choose them because they were holy. It was in his choosing them that caused them to be holy. He chose them so that they'd be set apart. They had a specific role and function. And that was to be a light to all the nations. You see, God chose Israel so that everybody would have opportunity to know the one true God and have opportunity to come to him. His election is not just choosing some and not choosing others. His election is so that people can walk in that holiness to be blameless and be a light for others to hear 
to see and to know the one true God. So the term without blame again speaks of, you know, the animal sacrifices all through the Old Testament when people were to bring in animal sacrifices, they were to choose animals that were, that were without blemish. That's the idea here when, when Paul writes to be blameless. They were to be without blemish. They were to be spot, like pure animals. And that's what he's calling us to be, is to be pure, to be set apart, to not be defiled by the things of the world, but to be set apart from the world and set apart to God to live as a light in the world where others will know and see God lived out in and through our lives. But again, we look at being blameless and we think, oh my goodness, God, I can't do that. There's no, do you know me, God? Do you know what I'm capable of? You're asking me to be holy and without blame? I think that's an impossibility, right? But again, understand that this is not something that's based just on our ability. We live in the in the in between right now, right? We're we're saved from our sin. We're dying to you know the old man, but the old man is still alive, right? The flesh is still at work, trying to have its way. But we're being set apart. We're we're living now and walking in the spirit, trying to be again fed of the spirit, strengthened in the spirit. But there's that in between. But understand that the Lord does that work now, of cleansing, purifying, and setting us apart to be without blame. In fact, it tells us in Jude verse 24, now to him, Jesus, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. You see, when I stand before God one day, I'm gonna be standing in Christ's righteousness. That's why I know I'm going to heaven. It's not because I've presented myself as blameless and so perfect. No, I'm gonna be going to heaven because I am in Christ. Again, there's that term, in Christ. And it's him that's going to present me faultless. It's gonna present you as faultless without blame. That's the key here. That's what we have going for us in and through Jesus Christ. Amen to that. Listen, verse five, we gotta move along. Um, Verse five, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, here's again another word, predestined that sends some believers into, into some kind of like tailspin or, you know, freaking out. Like, how does that work? Predestined is he. And, and some people will then, they equate it to this, that if God has predestined some to be saved, then it naturally means, doesn't it? They deduce that it, it means he's predestined some to hell, sadly. And people can look at it that way and go, well, how does that, I, I just don't, that seems ungodlike. And that's called double predestination where some will take it to that degree where they say, if he's predestined son to be saved, then he's predestined son to be saved. Listen, again, I don't believe that. I don't believe the Bible teaches that at all. You see, rather, um, predestination is really only spoken of for God's people. In other words, this is a work that God has, has destined believers to. This isn't about salvation. This word predestination rather clarifies what is destined for those who are saved. Election refers to people while predestination refers to purposes. Romans 8, 29 says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among brethren. In Romans 8, the predestination is for the elect to be conformed to his son. 
So all those that will come to him, he's predestined them to be conformed to his son. In Ephesians 1, that predestination is linked to adoption. All those that will come to him, he's predestined to be adopted in as family. So predestination is not about salvation. It's about what God has chosen and, and destined all those that come to him to be walking in and living in. Election is about people. Predestination is more about his purposes for those people. Now, the, de- the adoption through Jesus is an amazing thing here to look at. I, I, this just so blesses me. You see, Barclay writes this. The person who had been adopted had all the rights of a legitimate son under Roman law, okay? Under Roman law, the person who had been adopted had all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family, and he lost, all, uh, lost absolutely all rights in his old family. In the eyes of the law, he was now a new person. So new was he that, he that even all debts and obligations connected with his previous family were abolished as if they had never existed. That is what Paul says that God has done for us. We were absolutely in the power of sin in the world, but God through Jesus took us out uh, of that power into his. And that adoption now wipes out the past and makes us new. Do you understand that? We were all slaves to sin, all right? We were walking according to the, the course of this world. But adoption now has brought us out to where all those past debts that we owed because of sin are now wiped out. And we become a new person in the family of God. Wearsby goes on to say this. You do not get into, into God's family by adoption. You get into his family by regeneration, the new birth. Adoption is the act of God by which he gives his born ones an adult standing in the family. Why does he do this? so that we might immediately begin to claim our inheritance and enjoy our spiritual wealth. A baby cannot legally use this inheritance, but an adult son can and should. This means that you do not have to wait until you are an old saint before you can claim your riches in Christ. We're adopted in, and that adoption brings with it great benefits and blessings. John chapter 1, verse 12 to 13, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God through adoption. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That's the key for us. Have you become a child of God? Becoming a child of God simply means that you recognize your need for Jesus to save you. That you've been following the course of this world. You've been living for self. And you now recognize, man, that, that's the, the path that leads to death. There's no good in that. I need Jesus to do that work of saving me, forgiving me of my sin. And to be saved and to become a child of God simply means you, you call it to Jesus and say, Jesus, come and save me, forgive me of my sin. I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. And those that do so simply become children of God. You're adopted in. You're removed from the past debts that you owe because of this world and because of sin, and you are now free in Christ. You are brought into the family of God where all the blessings that we're looking at here in Ephesians 1 are now yours in Christ. There's no greater blessing that we'll ever experience than becoming children of God. And that's a free gift for you. If you're here today and you have not done that and you've been putting it off, let me just tell you that God loves you and he desires for you to come in and receive that forgiveness of sin and receive his life. 
for you to receive the blessings that he has for all that are his. Lastly, verse six. Now Paul says again, just to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. This incredible work that has been done for us by God is not so we can prance around and highlight how amazing we are. Look at, look at what I have now. Look at what I've earned. No, it's all because of God. That's why Paul says, to the praise and the glory of his grace, of all that he's done for us. This is not our praise and glory. Listen, understand something. We exist for the praise of God. We exist for his glory. Our lives are all being lived simply for God to be glorified. Sometimes we flip around and we think God exists for us. And so when troubling times come, we go, God, where are you? Aren't you the one that's supposed to spare me from this stuff? Aren't you the one that's supposed to keep me out of prison? And Paul says, it's all to the praise of his glory and his grace. It's also that God can be more greatly glorified in and through our lives. Paul recognized that his life exists for the glory of God. So much so that if he's sitting in prison, he goes, all right, God, I know that you're gonna do great things through this experience. And the more that we live to the glory of God, the more that we're fulfilling the very mission that we have in life is just to represent God, to make him known, to bring glory to him. And, and God can be glorified in whatever circumstance, situation, trial you might be experiencing. Sometimes God does those things so that he can receive greater glory. That's what he did for the Israelites as they're coming out of Egypt and he brings them to the Red Sea. They're hemmed in. They've got the Red Sea in front of them, Pharaoh's army coming behind them, mountains on either side of them, so much so that people are saying, we're trapped, we're doomed. Moses, why have you let us out here? Is it just so that we could die out here in the wilderness? God says, stand still. What I've done here, I've done so that I might get greater glory. They didn't have to look at this and go, God, why are you doing this to us? He said, recognize and go, God, we're just gonna stand still and see the salvation of the Lord now. We're gonna get, we're just gonna sit here and wait for your command because we know that you're gonna do a great thing in this and it's all gonna be for your greater glory. God opens the Red Sea, they pass through. Pharaoh's army comes in, they drown in the Red Sea. Why? So that God's name would be more greatly glorified. So that people, the enemies of God, would know that he's the God to be worshiped. Well, and then he ends by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Man, people need to hear that today. That's one of the tragedies of society where people are looking for acceptance. And they're willing to compromise in so many ways as long as it means I'm gonna have people around me that's gonna take me in and accept me for, for who I am. People are looking for acceptance. But understand, look at what the Bible says here, that you are accepted. This isn't a future thing. You are accepted. Past tense, this is something that's reality today. You, if you are in Christ, well, you're accepted in the beloved. You're in. He loves you. And this, again, is not based on what you do and your performance. Many people struggle with the idea of God being able to accept them, they'll think themselves unworthy, undeserving, they'll spiral further down in shame and self-loathing. Being willing, again, to adapt to whatever lifestyle may bring them 
acceptance. People need to know that God's acceptance is not based on your goodness or your worthiness. Recognize simply that you're a sinner, you're flawed, you're broken, but God has given an amazing invitation to come in and experience his life by which you might know that you are accepted in the beloved, in and through Christ. It's all because of him. And when you accept his free gift of forgiveness and salvation, you experience this great acceptance before God through Jesus, God's beloved son. What a blessing that is for us. Paul's just getting going here. Next, we'll go pick it up in verse seven as we look at the blessings of God the Son and we get to see another list of wonderful blessings that are ours. I pray today that you recognize how good God is, how good he is in your life and the blessings that we have been given and that we are to be enjoying today in Christ. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word, for this time to reflect on your goodness, God. It's all about just remembering what you've done for us. Lord, all through the Bible, constant reminders. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who has redeemed you, Lord. We see today, you're the God that's done all these things in our lives. It's all because of you. And today I pray that you would be glorified, that we would live with joy and thankfulness because of what's been done. And we live and be centered in Christ, knowing that we're accepted because of his work for us. Lord, for those that don't know that, I pray that you would draw them to you today, that they'd understand the great grace and love that is theirs through the work of Jesus and the life that they can be given freely in you. So lead us on, Lord, in your truth and your ways. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Worship team, would you come on up?